Now, I'm not sure about you parents and how when you were kids and you had to navigate these things, but when I was a kid and my parents asked me to do chores, my first response was, do I have to? And typically, my parents would respond with, no, you don't have to, you get to. And it's one of those deals where my parents, they were not only trying to motivate obedience, but they were seeking to shepherd my heart. They were seeking to cultivate within me a desire to obey. And this is what we try to do as parents. We're seeking to shepherd our children's hearts. That as we raise them up, we want them to obey the Lord and to obey us with a posture of gratitude, not grumbling or frustration, but an eagerness. We do this as bosses, as managers and supervisors, that when those who are underneath our care and leadership, we want them to obey. Why? Because it's for their good and for the good of the organization. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 7, we see where Stephen addresses the disobedience of Israel. He's walking through the narrative of the Old Testament on how the people would disobey the Lord with hearts that were hard and grumbling towards the Lord. What I want us to see this morning is not only do we see where God has a heart for obedience from his people on the outside, but a desire for obedience on the inside. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and, and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. I, I love this rich narrative of where the early church began, where we got our roots, where we all began as followers of Jesus. Stephen on Acts chapter 7 is on trial for his life. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, these 70 men plus the high priest who have the authority to kill him. And it's there that he gives a defense for his life. We see where earlier in chapter 6 where these lies, these false accusations have been leveraged against him. And so here he stands having to give an account. But let's not forget that Jesus said that this would happen to his followers. In Luke 21, Jesus told his disciples that they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Here is Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin and Christ is giving him the words to say. And what are the words that he is saying? He's quoting Old Testament scripture. He's bringing the word of God to bear upon a group of people who have it memorized in their heads, but have not treasured it or savored it in their hearts. And here he is bringing the word upon these men. He's walking the Jewish Supreme High Court through the treasure map of the Torah and the Hebrew Bible. And he's highlighting the prophets that Israel has rejected throughout her history. He begins with Abraham, verse 2, and how God promised to give him land and descendants. Then he transitions to Joseph, verse 9, how he was sold into slavery, but God raised him up as a type of savior for the nation of Egypt. Then Stephen pivots to Moses, verse 20, and how God raised him up as a deliverer who would lead the people out of slavery, and yet the people rejected him. 
You see, throughout her history, Israel has been a rebellious people who have turned their back on the Lord. And even when they had Moses to lead them forward, they still would not follow him. And that is where we pick up in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 39. And the scripture says this, Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, house of Israel. Did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Repham, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This morning, I want you to notice in the text how the people of Israel turn their back on the Lord, how it points us to Jesus and what this means for us. I want you to see the first thing in the text. I want you to see Israel's refusal to obey God. Moses had led the people out of Egypt and out into the wilderness. He'd gone to the very presence of God on their behalf. He delivered to them the word of God, and yet they still refused to obey him. They were a stiff-necked people. They were obstinate. They refused to obey the Lord. I'll put in your notes three R words that reflect the actions and attitudes of Israel in the days of Moses. The first R word that we see, we see the rejection of God's man. Verse 39 says, our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. That word him is a, is a reference to Moses. They refused to listen to him. They pushed him aside as if he was a nuisance or a bother. They rejected God's prophet, God's mediator, God's leader. The second R word, we see the rebellion against God's plan. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would go into the land of promise. When Moses came on the scene, they were slaves in Egypt. However, God empowered Moses to lead the nation out of slavery toward the land of promise. But instead of being grateful, eager to go to the promised lands, they rebelled against him. Where did this rebellious heart come from? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see where sin first entered into the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they ate of the fruit in the garden, when they disobeyed the Lord, sin came forth and rebellion not only affected Adam and Eve, but infected all of mankind. You see, all people have a heart of rebellion. If you don't believe me, I want you to go serve in the preschool. These precious little children are image bearers who right now are probably kicking and punching and biting over a fire truck. <laughs> who taught them that? Westwood did not teach them that, by the way. <laughs> and parents, you didn't either. Where did that heart of rebellion come from? Well, it came from our first parents. That deep within the heart of all people, 
is this heart towards rebellion, this heart towards sin and disobedience. That deep in our hearts, we rebel against the Lord. We want to go our own path. Well, for Israel, verse 39, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Their hearts were longing for their old lives. Like an abused girlfriend returning back to her abuser, it's foolish and deadly. The plea of the scriptures, don't go back to Egypt. It's foolish and it's deadly. You see, just as Israel rebelled against God's plan, Israel had rebelled against God's son. They turned back, uh, their back on God's plan of salvation, but instead they chose to live in bondage to the law. They wanted dead religion rather than the Savior who came to set them free. You see, Christ died to set us free from the law. You see, the plan of salvation in Jesus is God's way of breaking the chains of dead religion and providing freedom and a new life in Christ. Paul said it like this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Maybe today you're tempted to go back to your old life. There's an old sin an old habit, an old relationship that you're tempted to go back to. See the model of Acts chapter seven. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to your old sin. Don't go back to that old relationship that brings you away from Jesus. The, the plea of the New Testament is that you don't go back to your old life. This was the heart of the writer of Hebrews. That is, these Jewish Christians are now following Jesus. They've left Judaism. They're being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And they're sitting there thinking, man, it was a lot easier when we weren't getting beat up for our faith in Jesus. Man, it was a lot easier when we weren't losing our jobs and facing persecution, even death for following Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is like, don't go back. Jesus is true. Jesus is better. Jesus is the way forward. You can't go back. Stay faithful to Christ. Man, saying to you, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to the sins that so easily ensnares and entangles you. You're going to feel this pull, this desire to go back. Don't do it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it for thy courts above. We sing that in which we say, God, don't let my heart wander from you. Don't let me go back to Egypt. Don't fall in love with your old way of life. Why? It's foolish and it's deadly. It leads to destruction. Jesus came to give you life. So deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow him all the way to the end, even all the way through the promised land. So we see the rejection of God's man. We see the rebellion against God's plan. And thirdly, we see the revering of idols made by human hands. Verse 41 says they were celebrating what their hands had made. Now remember the people of Israel, they were a people living amongst a pagan nation in Egypt for hundreds of years. They had breathed the air of idolatry. They lived in a culture where they would walk past temples every day on the way to work and seeing people worship. That every day they would see the Egyptians bowing down to these false gods as they're on their way to the market to pick up food for their families. 
Well, when Moses leads them out of the desert, he disappears for about 40 days up to Mount Sinai where he meets with the Lord. Well, while he's gone, the people's hearts begin to wander. They ask Moses' brother Aaron to to make them an idol to worship. But instead of celebrating what God had done for them, of rescuing them from slavery, remember the 10 plagues? Bringing them through the Red Sea, the people worshiped a golden calf. God had just shown them tremendous grace. He had provided for them a plan of salvation, of rescue and exodus out of slavery. But instead of living a life of gratitude and worship, they turned to a homemade idol. But before you and I look down our long noses at them, question how often do we do the same? We've believed the gospel. We've seen God deliver us into salvation. And yet there's times in which we put more greater passion into sports than we do into Jesus. We have a greater desire for more money than we do for more of Jesus. We want more likes on social media than we want more of Jesus. We want the praise of people more than the praise of God. You see, John Calvin got it exactly right when he said, the human heart is an idle factory. You see, deep within you and I, we were made for worship. We were made to worship the Lord. And unfortunately, if Jesus is not sitting on the throne of our hearts, we will wander to something or someone else. You see, idols are so easily able to jump into our hearts if we are not diligent about staying focused, about making Christ as number one of our hearts and lives. Uh, Tim Keller says it well in which he says sin is making a good thing an ultimate thing. It's when we take a, a, a relationship with our spouse and we all of a sudden becomes more important than Jesus. And we are to love our children. We're commanded to. But when our children become more important than Jesus, that's a problem. We're to work hard unto the Lord. But when your job has greater desire and passion within your heart than Jesus, that's a problem. You see, idols are right there. And if we are not careful, it will lead us away from Jesus. David asks the question in Psalm 24, who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his presence? Then he gives the resume, three things. He who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, he who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. Nobody. Nobody in this room or watching online can say, I have clean hands. Nobody here can say, I have a pure heart. Nobody can say, I've never lifted up my soul to an idol. But there was one, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the one who has clean hands. The Lord Jesus is the one who has a pure heart. The Lord Jesus is the one who never lifted up his soul to an idol. Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 24. He is the one who can stand in God's holy temple. He is the one who perfectly obeyed his father. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who perfectly obeyed the Father. Jesus never sinned. He never worshiped an idol. He alone perfectly loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. 
You see, Israel's history and your history is saturated with idolatry and refusal to obey God. But praise God for true Israel, right? Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed perfectly and now through faith in the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection, God credits his perfect sinless life to your account. Okay, don't miss that, y'all. Don't miss what I just said. God looks at you and sees Christ's perfect life on your account. Now, y'all go to Starbucks and think about that for an hour. That God takes Christ's perfect righteousness and he doesn't see your idolatry. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your past. He sees Christ. And Christ's perfect life is credited to your account. So now his perfect life, it's as if you lived a perfect life. Not because of you, but because of him. And praise his name. Look what he's done. This is one of the beauties of the gospel, is that God not, does not look upon you and your idolatry. He sees his perfect son living in you. All right? So 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says it like this. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That at the cross, Jesus took your idolatry, he took your rebellion, he, he took your rejection at the cross, and then through his death, now the righteousness of God is imputed to you. That Christ's righteousness is now credited to your accounts. Let me say it a different way. In Christ, you are no longer considered by God as rebellious, but righteous. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, the beauty of what God has done for you in the gospel. Of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, it's through the cross you're adopted. Yes, it's through the cross that you're forgiven. Yes, it's through the cross that you're able to stand before God. But oh, behold, the beautiful exchange that has taken place where Christ takes all of your sin and he gives you all of his righteousness. That you can stand mature and complete before God. Which means on the last day, when you go one-on-one -on -one with God, Hebrews 9.27, it is destined for man to die once and after this the judgment. You do not have to fear that day if you are hidden in Christ. Jesus, your righteousness, is your advocate. He's your defense attorney, and he stands for you. And through his shed blood makes perfect atonement for all of your mess-ups and screw-ups. Oh, what a Savior he is. Behold the Lord Jesus Christ. All that he has accomplished for you in the gospel. But now, okay, now here we go. Now this is about to get really fun, y'all. Now. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that's inside of you. He's in you, right? He now gives you a desire to want to obey. You want to obey his commands. This one's deals are like, do I have to? No, I want to. His commands are not burdensome. They're a delight, sweeter than honey more precious than gold. See, obedience is not a drudgery when Jesus has your heart. And as followers of Jesus, we are regularly repenting of idolatry because it's right there. 
Like we have to actively, proactively fight until you take your last breath. Can I say to y'all, the Christian life doesn't get easier as you get older. You've got to keep fighting, y'all. When you're 99 on your deathbed, you've got to keep slaying the idols. You've got to daily deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. It does not get easier, but you're going to find a record of decades of God's faithfulness throughout your life. He promises, I'm going to be with you even on your deathbed to give you victory over sin that is crouching at your door. As we're regularly repenting of idolatry, we continually return to Jesus for grace. And oh, he offers us an avalanche of grace when we continually return to him. But as for the men sitting before Stephen, they refused. They refused to obey God and they refused to believe the gospel, which leads to number two. Israel rejected God, so God rejected Israel. Verse 42, God turned away and gave them up. Stephen is reminding his audience of God's judgment that he brought against his own people due to their disobedience. To drive this home, in verses 42 and 43, Stephen quotes Amos chapter 5. Okay, so while Israel was in the wilderness, they did not obey the Lord, they worshipped other gods. In the same way in Amos' day, 750 years after the exodus from Egypt, the northern kingdom of Israel, okay, I feel like I need to do a quick history lesson. People go into the promised land under Joshua. God raises up judges. Eventually they get kings. Then they get Solomon. Solomon's great, but then not so much. He has two sons. The, the kingdom divides. I just covered a lot of, like a thousand years in like three sentences. Okay. The majority, okay, 10 tribes go north, northern kingdom. It's called Israel. Okay. Southern kingdom, Judah, and another. Okay. So we have northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah. You with me so far? Okay. All right. So this is, this is what's happening here. This, this helps you make sense of what's happening in verses 42 and 43. So Amos who is a prophet to the northern kingdom, where they have no good kings, not, not a single one. Up there, their hearts are prone towards idolatry. And so Amos foretells of the exile of the northern kingdom under the Assyrians, okay? But what's interesting, you guys are like, this is not interesting. Y'all, this is fascinating to me. <laughs> Stephen, in verse 43, replaces the word Damascus from Amos 5, and he uses the word Babylon. You can see it right there in verse 43. What's he doing? Is he changing scripture? No. Here's what he's doing. He's highlighting God's judgment on the entire nation. Because later Babylon would come and get the southern kingdom for their idolatry. And so Stephen's point is, yeah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, all of them turn their backs on God. And so what he's doing here is Stephen is connecting how all of Israel had turned their back on the Lord. In fact, he quotes verse 43, the tent of Molech. Now let's talk about that for a moment. Molech worship was the worship of Saturn and the stars, but it was also a big giant bronze statue of a bull with two arms stretched out. 
And inside of this bronze statue was a burning fire. And the act of worship to the God of Molech was to place a baby live in the fire. And you can just imagine the horrific scene that that was. The screaming of the baby. The screaming of the mother who has the baby pried out of her arms. The stench of burning flesh. The scene of such an evil, horrific practice. And God, through Moses, tells his people, you should never do this. Leviticus 18.21, you shall not give any of your children to devote them by fire to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. Sadly, this type of worship continued. Well, there came a point where God had had enough. Verse 42 is a terrifying verse. God turned away and gave them up to worship. It's the point where continued disobedience leads God to take his gracious restraint off in handing people over to the desires of their hearts. Is this what you want? You're going to continually disobey me? Here you go. It is God handing people over to the desires of their hearts. God handing people over and pulling back the restraints, which is the judgment of God. Paul addresses this with the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, where the people of God, the, let me phrase that back up. The Gentiles, non-believers, had gotten involved in such grotesque sexual perversion, Romans 1.24, God hands them over to the desires of their hearts. Here you go. Well, for the Sanhedrin, Stephen is telling them, just as God handed Israel over to their idolatry in the wilderness, and just as God handed the people over to exile in Babylon, God is handing, handing you over to your own desires and judgment is coming. Stephen is drawing a line from the exodus to the exile to that current day. And eventually judgment would come. In 70 AD, Rome would come and attack and obliterate Jerusalem, the temple, and Israel. And Stephen is driving home. You have rejected Jesus, you have held on to your idolatry of the law, and the high priest has helped you to do it. God rejected his people because they never humbled themselves and drew near to him. Here's the good news. God does not reject his people forever. In Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity, passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever. Praise God. 
because he delights in faithful love. God offers grace and forgiveness to all who humble themselves, turn from their sin, and trust in his son. This morning, our electricity went out at our house at 2 a.m., so I was awakened, and so I laid there tossing and turning, and it just reminded me. In that moment, as I'm thinking about this text, I'm like, thank you, God, for Jesus, who is evidence that you do not permanently stiff-arm your people. Jesus is God's evidence of grace that he does not forever reject his people. In fact, Jesus was rejected by God so that through repentance and faith in him, you will be received by God forever. Oh, this is the gospel. This is what we celebrate and why we rally and we clap and we sing with gusto because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. You see, it's through the cross, Jesus received the divine judgment of God for our sin. That it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And he gladly took it out of the overflow of love that he has for you. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah 53. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. God offers grace to all who humble themselves and obey him. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point? And it's this, humble yourself before the Lord and obey his word. You see, God's word, his commands are not a burden. They're not a drudgery. They're a delight. We rejoice in them. You see, obedience to the Lord is a joy when your heart has been changed by Jesus. You see, God changes your will as he changes your heart with the gospel. When you realize that you went from death to life, you went from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that you were swimming in quicksand, Jesus snatched you up and he put your feet on rock. When you see all that God has done for you in the gospel, it changes your heart. And when God changes your heart, he brings you these commands and he asks you to do what he says. And your response is no longer, do I have to? No. Your response is, I want to. I want to obey you because of what you've done for me in the gospel. So would you today humble yourself? Would you look at a bloodstained cross where Jesus came and gave his life for you? Would you humble yourself and say, God, I'm putting my yes on the table. I'm open-handed and I want to obey you. I thank you that you will receive me, my mess and all, my pride, my selfishness. You're going to receive me and you're going to change me and you're going to make me like your son. 